Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Kusuko National Park is a hidden gem in northwest Honduras. This is a cloud forest. It's at a high elevation. And so the condensation on all of the plant life produces these unbelievable air-dwelling plants that have roots that just go out into space and all this incredible moss that adorns all the tree trunks. You wake up in the morning and it's, it's quite crisp and there are clouds touching the tops of the trees and quetzals flying around the campsite and vocalizing and you just feel like you're on a different planet. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's listening, really listening, to the orchestra of the natural world. It's a magical place with a lot of different elements to it. We also could find other frogs and other birds and even howler monkeys. So we got a really thorough documentation of the various voices of Kasuko, and I feel like I've really connected with the orchestra that's playing there. In this episode, we're going off the edge of the map as we explore the unknown. And we're hoping to solve a few of the natural world's perplexing little mysteries along the way. We begin the journey today with a small, unassuming-looking tree frog in the Kasuko cloud forest in Honduras, in Central America. It goes by the rather glorious name of Plectrahyla exquisita, or the exquisite spike-thumb frog. We know where it lives, and we know what it looks like, but here's the mystery. No one knows what it sounds like. My colleagues had been studying Plectrahyla exquisita in the cloud forests of Honduras for over a decade, and they had never heard it croak in the wild. And that was quite surprising to me. When we imagine frogs, we think of their voices almost immediately. This is Ben Mirren, and if anyone's going to discover the voice of a previously voiceless animal, it's him. I am an ethno-ornithologist, currently pursuing my PhD at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I'm also a wildlife DJ. I travel the world recording the sounds of wildlife that I study for science and sample their voices to create music that inspires conservation. But recording the call of the shy spike-thumb frog is not just a matter of curiosity. It's potentially a matter of life and death. For the frog, anyway. They're critically endangered through a combination of the outbreak of chytrid fungus and the acceleration of climate change and the loss of their habitat. So the time was now, if we were going to ever try to capture the voice of this frog, not just for posterity, but for actually saving the species, we had to act quickly. If we could get a quality recording of this frog's sound, there might be ways that we could actually play the sound back to the frogs in captivity to stimulate competition and breeding. And so that was the mission, was to try to get the voice of this frog so we could bring it back from extinction. 
We went down during May when he had never surveyed these frogs before. Uh, now, this is an arboreal tree frog, so we were expecting to look up in the trees to find them, but almost immediately, we found an exquisita sitting in the middle of a stream during the day. And this is a nocturnal frog as well. So this frog was breaking all the rules from almost day one, and we had no idea why. I would usually find a frog, set up a microphone, attach it to a tree, and have it pointed right at the animal in case it made any kind of sound. And I would sit there for one or two hours just taking notes on what the frog was doing. And sometimes it was almost nothing. <laughs> they would just be sitting there. It's a fist-sized tree frog with really strong legs and big bulging eyes. It's adorable. It has, of course, a big wide mouth, which kind of looks like a smile if you, if you get to know it well enough. There's this incredible chill vibe that you get from these frogs, just watching them hang out and do their thing. But again, we couldn't hear anything that they were saying. And we had surveyed almost every hour of the day, except the hours of 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. It was the only chapter left in our data that we hadn't uh, accounted for, so we got up at midnight and hiked through the darkness down the Kazuka River. We put on our boots and we stumbled over these boulders, trying not to put our hands on vipers at the same time, and went back down to these pools where we had seen the frog hanging out before. We thought, well, maybe if these frogs are hanging out underwater, they might be communicating underwater in the manner that other frogs do on other continents. So I brought a hydrophone, and I taped it to a simple camera tripod, and I was just lowering it into the sand and into the leaf litter and moving it around, and it was about 3 in the morning, so I was a little delirious. And I shifted the microphone over to my right, and suddenly I heard this sound. And I froze. And I just kept recording the sound for about five minutes. And it was a distinct acoustic pattern of about eight beats. I was incredibly excited and and honestly overwhelmed and also super focused it's this moment of incredible beauty and intimacy it's like the rest of the world disappeared and I had this one moment where I was connected to this individual animal and it was giving me a glimpse into its life After I felt like I had a solid take, I waved at John through the darkness. And this is the challenge of acoustic recording when you get something exciting, is that you can't make noise, you can't freak out. So I had to visually get his attention, <laughs> which means frantically waving in the darkness and like holding my hat over my head until he saw me, came over and asked what was going on. And I said, is this a thing? I took my headphones off and put them on him and he heard the sound. He turned to me and said, that's, that's definitely a thing. I don't think anyone's put a hydrophone at the bottom of the Kusuka River before, so whatever we're onto is, is quite new and quite exciting. The real ingredient that would solidify this as a potential frog sound is if we could hear it somewhere else where we had also observed the frogs. 
So let's go to another pool where we saw Exquisita and deploy this microphone again. Fast forward about eight hours. It's around dusk, maybe 7 p.m. And I have the same setup and I deploy it in this other pool and I go to push record and my guide grabs me by the shoulder and says, Mira, mira, la rana está aquí. And I turn around and the frog is actually swimming through the water towards the tripod. And it wraps its, its long fingers around the leg of the tripod and starts to climb. And I have my headphones in and I'm hearing this sound. And as the frog leaves the water, the sound stops. I don't know that we can definitely say this is the sound of the frog. As a scientist, you always have to be skeptical. You always have to be looking for the next layer of evidence to substantiate your claims and your theories. But this is a really strong anecdotal piece of evidence to suggest that we may have recorded the voice of this frog underwater. And what's exciting now is that we may have a recording that, with further experimentation, could be shown to be the vocalization of the species and could be used in potential playback experiments to motivate competitive behavior and actually help these frogs reproduce, rebuild the population, and try to save the species. The emotion came out in waves, and to realize that I, as a sound artist, could contribute in such a concrete way to conservation was incredibly moving, and I was grateful for that. Ben isn't just a wildlife sound recordist, he's also a DJ. And he mixes the sounds he records in the wild into music. He's made his recordings of the Kasuko Orchestra, including what might just be the first ever recording of Plectrohyla Exquisita, into a beat. If you want to hear the full track, stick around till the end of the podcast. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're pushing... a. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The boundaries of our knowledge and asking questions about the natural world that don't necessarily have answers. Perhaps the greatest unknown any of us will face is our own future. What will I do? Where will I go? And what will become of me? The path we take through life is full of unknown twists and turns, forks and switchbacks and secret tunnels. But for some of us, it can feel like the route has been paved out for us ahead of time, 
straight and narrow, with no twists and no surprises. Luckily, the safest path is not always the one we take. Our next story is about a woman who worked to discover the secrets of one of the Western Pacific Ocean's most enigmatic fish, the enormous, graceful, improbable manta ray. But before she could explore the lives of these gentle ocean giants, she had to take control of her own. So I actually grew up in Provo, Utah, in the U.S., in the Mormon church, and you're raised that your main priority in life is to kind of find a husband and have children and be kind of the typically traditional stay-at-home mom. This is Julie Hartup. At one point in her life, her future seemed fixed in stone. I did that. I got married very young, barely 19, started having kids right away and had three kids. And I just had this gnawing feeling like I just wanted something in addition to my family. And I started scuba diving. I loved it. It was like, yes, this is my world. This is where I'm meant to be. I mean, you get underwater, you see colors that you don't normally see. You see these strange animals that look like plants, but they're actually animals. You just start to see this whole new world that you just never imagined. And I just couldn't get enough. I was like, when's the next class? When's the next class? <laughs> I quickly became an instructor. And unfortunately, my husband at the time didn't like that. For him, it was, you know, having something outside of just being the home that was taking my attention away. And he's really traditional, and that's fine. People can have their own beliefs. But for me, I just felt, you know, it was just taking a part of me away. So we actually ended up getting divorced. I was, you know, how now do I take care of a family on just an instructor's salary and decided to go back to school to go into marine biology. You know, I was divorced, which in our community isn't looked good on, you know, and so I kind of felt sometimes like the odd one out. And so, yeah, it was difficult, but at the same time, I couldn't get enough classes. I loved learning. It was such a great experience. Fast forward a few years. Julie's finished her degree. She's a qualified marine biologist. She's also fallen in love again. Her new husband, Jason, understands just how important the underwater world is to her. Together, Julie and Jason take another bold leap into the unknown. They pack up their lives and move to a small tropical island called Guam, in Micronesia, in the Pacific. I mean, if you want a tropical paradise island, that's Guam and Micronesia for you. I must admit, I had no idea where it was, which is horrible because it's a U.S. territory. We should all know where it's at. We spent a year there and we loved it. And so it's been home ever since. I dove a lot just so that I could get to know the marine life. And I saw the mantas and I was just in love. I was in awe. I couldn't believe how beautiful they were. You might be able to picture a manta ray, but if you can't, let me help you out. They're relatives of sharks, and they have that distinctive, rough, smooth skin, blackish-grey on top, white on the belly. But that's where the similarities end. Where sharks are long and slim, manta rays are flat and wide. Where sharks snake through the water, left to right, 
mantas flap their enormous wings up and down and fly through the water. They kind of remind me of like, have you ever seen a stealth bomber? <laughs> a flat shark <laughs> It's kind of, kind of how I look at him. And some people don't realize that they eat plankton, zooplankton, the smallest things in the ocean. So they're not dangerous. For me, they're just so mesmerizing. I mean, the way mantas swim or move through the water, I mean, from afar, it's almost like this glide. I don't know, I always think of ballet when I see them because they're so graceful, but they have so much strength that the minute they want to take off, you know, there's no way you can catch up. <laughs> it's their eye that really gets me. It's like they see you. You know, they see your soul. That's how I feel, that they see exactly who I am. And so that's when I was like, okay, I found it. I know what I want to do. Okay, now I want to get my master's and I want to focus on studying manta rays. This decision was yet another leap into the unknown for Julie. A leap into the mysterious world of the mantas. Very little was known about how they spend their time, where they come from, and why they show up. This was the puzzle Julie set out to solve. My whole master's was really just trying to figure out, okay, well, where are the sites and habitats that are important to Guam? It's not the easiest animal to study because <laughs> they're not always around. I did like 25 surveys in a row and saw nothing. I was like, this is gonna be a really long master's <laughs> if, if this continues to be like this. Part of the thing that makes me really attracted to science and to marine biology is I love that puzzle, you know, that detective side of me. The whole key is really finding out where the food is. They're big animals and they eat the smallest thing in the ocean and they need to eat a lot of food. So really the key of finding where these majestic animals are is by finding where's the food. One of the things that we do is we look to YouTube and we look to what other people are seeing in the water. And I stumbled on one particular person, Paul Carlson, who kept on posting these great pictures and videos of the mantas. And one of them showed these fish that were spawning and then the manta going right into the middle of it. And then in addition to that, my friend was out paddling and she said, you know, I saw these fish that were spawning and the mantas were there and it looked like they were eating these fish spawning. I had this hypothesis and this theory that mantas are coming in and feeding off the fish spawn. For certain species of fish, reproduction is a carefully orchestrated event. Hundreds, even thousands of fish gather together in one place and when the time is just right, they all leap into action. Clouds of eggs and sperm are released simultaneously into the water, where they fertilise each other and drift off on the ocean currents. This feeding opportunity was what Julie suspected might be guiding the mysterious movements of the mantas. But there were no official records of it happening, no indication of when the fish might spawn, and the scientific community was sceptical. Julie was going to have to figure it out for herself. So the first thing was, i got to find out when these fish are spawning. Fish, I know, like to spawn around certain moon phases. And so I looked at the moon phase 
And my hypothesis was, okay, I'm gonna go out on this date and I'm gonna go over the reef and I'm gonna find these fish that are spawning and I'm gonna have mantas there eating off the fish spawn. <laughs> I really didn't have too much time to think other than grabbing my underwater camera and racing from the marine lab to where we were gonna meet. You know, it's that anticipation, like, is this happening or is it not? And then you saw all the fish. I mean, it was thousands. I mean, it was so thick and they flashed their little colors differently than you would normally see it. And sure enough, went over the reef and we had like 14 manta rays coming in. It actually worked, like I couldn't believe it. When you see a manta, I just, you know, it's like your heart stops. They're swooping in and gobbling it up and it makes your adrenaline pump for sure. <laughs> it was just such an amazing feeling to kind of have this idea where you think it's happening and then you go out and you go, oh yeah, it's happening. <laughs> and once you can predict where the mantas are going to be, scientific observation is finally possible. Julie's been studying the mantas on Guam now for over a decade. She's known on the island as the Manta Mum. And they've been studying her too. They're so curious. They'll come in, they'll do loops around you. They'll like dive down and do a somersault kind of around you to check you out. Because Guam has such a small population, I get to know these mantas. So I know them by sight. I know their different personalities. Some of them are a little bit shyer. Other ones want to come up and check you out over and over. But in Guam, you know, there's this one we call Sweet Samantha. She's so curious. And so whenever she comes over, she immediately comes straight to you. And then she kind of does this banking. She turns on her side and banks around you. So she's one of my favorites. I never tire of seeing mantas. If I see one, you know, I'm just as happy as when I see 10. I never get bored. Luckily, since I had to do it a lot. <laughs> The manta rays on Guam made a guest appearance on A Perfect Planet, the BBC natural history series all about the natural forces that make planet Earth what it is. And although she might not have been on camera, Julie was there too, advising the film crew where and how to find the mantas and diving right alongside them. So if you want to see sweet Samantha and the rest of the Guam mantas swooping and gliding through milky clouds of spawn, check out A Perfect Planet, narrated by Sir David Attenborough. It's out now in the UK, and check the BBC Earth website for when it's coming to your part of the world. Fascinated by a perfect planet? Discover more with the official companion book to the series, packed with over 250 full-colour images, and including a foreword by Sir David Attenborough. It's hardly surprising that some of the natural world's biggest mysteries come from the ocean. There's just so much of it out there. The sheer volume of the ocean is, is lost on a lot of people because when you're talking about the living space on the planet, what's called the biosphere, the oceans represent more than 99.5% of that living space. We just live in this very thin layer on land that extends to the tallest trees and you know maybe 10, 20 feet into the earth. That's Dr. Edith Widder. She's a marine biologist who spent most of her career trying to communicate with the animals that live in our oceans. The oceans are just astonishingly deep, 
and there's life everywhere and most of it makes light and so you know the question is what are they using that light for what are they communicating with each other Edith hadn't originally intended to take to the seas herself she started by getting others to do her observations for her they were using this diving suit called wasp to explore the midwater for the first time imagine kind of the michelin man with the michelin man arms and the pincers on the end and a bubble head there's no legs You've got foot switches on the floor of the suit that you use to control the thrusters that make it fly around. And I wasn't qualified as a pilot, but I would get on the headset and talk to whoever was down in the suit and ask them to turn out the lights and tell me what they saw, because it was well known that there was bioluminescence down there, but there weren't any um, visual recordings of it. And so they'd turn out the lights, and these supposedly dispassionate scientists would come back with, oh, wow, that is so cool. And I'd say, could you be more specific? And they were really pretty bad at it. And so the chief scientist kind of took pity on me, and he said, well, you know, we're going to do this again in two years. If you want to stay around and get trained up as a pilot, you, you could go down and see for yourself. And on the basis of that not very strong promise, I, I stayed around and did a postdoc um, in California and was able then to dive in the WASP. They lower you over the back of the ship, supported by the tether, and you slip beneath the waves and the water, you know, closes over your head. The first time I turned out the lights, it was spectacular. And I was just blown away by the bioluminescence. I certainly could understand their oh-wow response. And I knew enough about bioluminescence by that time to know how much energy it takes. So this was no trivial phenomenon. And I couldn't understand why more people weren't studying it because it seemed like this has got to be one of the most important things in the ocean. At one point, I was down in the suit and I was taking some light measurements. So I was looking down at the light meter readout and suddenly the whole inside of the suit lit up blue. And I thought it was an electrical short or something. I mean, it was really startling. And I looked up, and there was this 40-meter-long siphonophore out there that the suit had brushed against, and it just lit up like a, a neon sign. I could see all of the dials and gauges inside the suit by the luminescence, and it glowed for quite a long time. So, yeah, I saw some pretty spectacular things on those early dives, and that pretty much hooked me for life. So how do you observe creatures in a silent world whose language is light without scaring them off? Edith's solution was a contraption called the Eye in the Sea, a highly sensitive camera that hangs silently in the water, rigged with far-red lights, in between visible light and infrared on the spectrum. We can't see it, and neither can the ocean creatures, but the camera can. And so I had this unobtrusive way of observing animal life. And then to see how they would respond to luminescence, I created this electronic jellyfish, as we called it, that could imitate certain displays that I had observed and recorded. And one of them displays was of a pinwheel of light, so it would just swirl around the bell of the jellyfish. And uh, the very first time I tested the eye in the sea with that electronic jellyfish on an expedition, 86 seconds after I turned on the electronic jellyfish for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long that was completely new to science. 
And it was just mind-blowing. Squid aren't interested in eating jellyfish. In fact, squid mostly eat squid or fish. So that pinwheel display is what's called a bioluminescent burglar alarm. And it, it's the same principle as the burglar alarm on your car. The flashing lights and blaring horn are meant to attract attention, hopefully the police. Well, a lot of animals that use bioluminescence to find food or attract mates, they use light to attract attention to whatever's attacking them and the hope that some larger predator will come along that may not care about eating a jellyfish, but they certainly might want to eat what, what is eating the jellyfish. One of my biggest thrills was when I realized I was talking to the animals. So one of the flash patterns I've used on the electronic jellyfish is this rapid repetitive flash, which was like I had seen some animals do out there. Um, and every time it would do that, there would be things out there would do it back to me. And what they would do is they would squirt out little blobs of luminescent chemicals. So it would just be this string of dots in the water. And so I was talking and they were talking back to me. And I don't know what I was saying, but I think it was something sexy. Edith's electronic jellyfish caught the attention of a documentary filmmaker and longtime squid hunter, a man called Mike Degree. And he just got super excited and said, do you think this might work on giant squid? And I said, yeah, I think it might because, you know, these squid have the largest eyes of any animal on the planet. And I think, you know, they're visual hunters. I, I think it might work. Mike had reason to be excited. The giant squid is an almost mythical animal. It's unthinkably enormous, up to 18 metres from its bell-shaped head to the tip of its sinuous tentacles. We know it from mangled bodies washed up on shore, the occasional tattered remnant hauled in by trawler ships. It fascinates marine biologists, monster hunters and, of course, sci-fi fans on the hunt for the kraken. But it had never been caught on camera, despite countless attempts. So he got me invited on this major expedition off Japan um, in 2012 to be able to hunt for giant squid in a whole variety of different ways. And so I brought along a new version of the Eye in the Sea that we called the Medusa, and it got the first images ever video recorded of a giant squid in its natural habitat. In fact, we got five different sightings in the course of the expedition with that system. To have been the first person to actually be able to do this, you know, the scientists on that expedition, we all just went out of our minds. We were screaming. We were so excited. I don't think there's any better feeling as a human being than a discovery of that magnitude. That's who we are. We're explorers. And discovery is the pinnacle of exploration. You know, we're destroying the ocean before we know what's in it. And so I would like to see a lot more exploration out there, making people more aware of the life in the ocean and how we're connected to it. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Today's stories were produced by me, Emily Knight, and by Sam Grist. 
If you don't want to be left in the dark, you can sign up to our newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter for a helping of animals, nature and science delivered straight into your inbox. And join us next week when we'll be sending out an SOS and telling stories of rescue in the natural world. Times when humans have pulled together to rescue parts of our fragile planet and times when our wild world has rescued us. If you love the BBC Earth podcast, you might like the idea of popping on your headphones and taking an audio journey through a wild landscape. Ben Mirren, the man who tracked down the exquisite spike-thumb frog, hosts a live online event with the Cornell Lab Centre for Bioacoustics called Exploring Nature Through Sound and Music. It's a series of auditory journeys through forests and jungles around the world, with researchers on hand to explain what you're hearing. And Ben is behind the decks, turning those sounds into music live. There's one coming up on February 16th, but if you missed it, you can catch up with it online. Just search for the Cornell Bird Academy, click on Open Lectures and register to attend. And now to play us out, here's Ben's track featuring the chorus of Kasuko National Park, including the unmistakable sound of the exquisite spike thumb frog. Probably. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.